As you're listening to this episode, let us know if you have any questions for our guest. If so, please send us a message to team at onehaas.org or join our discussion board using our Clever podcast app. You can download the app at clever.fm. Welcome to the One Haas Alumni Podcast. I'm your host, Sean Lee, and today we're joined by Balsam Adivaki. Boss, you are a full-time MBA class of 2019, and currently you work as uh, business operations at Plaid. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me, Sean. Boss, with your accent, I just have to ask <laughs> about where you grew up and how you grew up. I'd love to hear a little bit about that. Yes, as I'm sure you've guessed, I grew up in England, so originally from London, born and raised, and I grew up in a part of London called Hackney, which I'm, I'm pretty proud of because it is... When I was growing up, it's known for vibrancy and diversity, right? There's always an anecdotal story I tell my friends of at the top of my road when I was growing up. On the left-hand side, you had a mosque. On the right-hand side, you had a synagogue. And one block behind, you had a church. So every single day, you hear the sounds of the different cultures and the different people and different religious faiths. And that becomes part of your DNA, right? Like everything is normal. Everything is the same. It's just a different language for the same thing. Did you go to school in London? Yeah, I went to school in London, went to school in Dunedin and Hackney, and really started kind of, went to university outside of London. That was kind of an intentional decision to be as far away from home that you don't get an arbitrary visit from your mum randomly, but close enough to home so that when you're washing, your mum can help you out. So yeah, but I, I grew up in London, went to school in London, 15 minute, 20 minute walk from, from where we used to live. Got it. And you went to, uh, as you said, try to get as far as possible, but not too far. What was it like at a uh, university in Nottingham? And what did you study there? It was cool. It was good. It was, oh, I remember going in England before you go to the university, you spend kind of the previous, going around to different campuses and walking around and getting a feel for, hey, you know, could I live there? Could I not live there? And I remember going to Nottingham and the campus is massive. It reminds me a lot of Berkeley. The campus is really big, really green. And it seems so different from inner city London, which is flats next to houses, next to flats. And everything is very jam-packed. So it was a really interesting experience. I, yeah, it was just, it was fun to be outside of London. It was fun to see a different side of the world. It was fun to have grass and greenery around all the time. It, yeah, it was pretty nice. <laughs> it was pretty, yeah, it was, it was good. That's awesome. So what did you study uh, in university? Yeah, so I studied business, which was, I remember in fact, I was actually going to start, I wanted to study psychology, because I was really fascinated by... The, Same here. Uh, just call us twins, man, call us twins. I was really fascinated by how the mind works and how people make decisions, right? And yeah. how your experiences inform your kind of perspective and your scheme of looking at the world. But then, you know, like I did my research and I was like, I can't wait six, seven years to start getting paid. Just <laughs> how long it takes to like qualify as like a sophisticated yep. psychologist. So I was like, no, let me let me do something a bit more practical. Let me just do a bit do a business degree where it's pretty broad. And I joined one of the, the big professional services firm called PwC when I graduated. So it was like a I had a really good baseline for, for starting that job. Yeah. That makes perfect sense. I mean I had the same feeling. I, I was just fascinated by the human condition and I wanted to study psychology. My mom was like, How about you choose business? It's very similar. <laughs> <laughs> But even to this day, I was just talking to someone about this morning, one of our team members, how I just love 
books around the human condition. Like one of my favorite books, The Undoing Project by Michael Lewis. It's a story of Daniel Kahneman, behavioral economist, and uh, Amos Tversky. And it's, it's about their story of how they came upon the field of behavioral psychology of, because they coined a lot of the terms around the biases that we know today, confirmation bias and things. And they, and it just always blows my mind. Like, how did you, it's so obvious now after they've coined it, <laughs> but how do they even come to think to study this thing and say like, hey, let's study all these biases and we're going to run experiments around these biases and whatnots. And, and it just amazes me. And I imagine like, whilst you're doing that, being cognizant of your own biases, which inform how you view biases. I have an, the Undoing Project, you said it's called, right? Yeah, Undoing Project. It's just an amazing story of a friendship and how they came upon these things. But tell us a little bit about what brought you to the MBA. Yes, I had worked for a while at PwC. I was pretty fortunate in that I had started in London. I spent some time in Switzerland and I spent the last few years in Mexico while I was building the team. I loved it. Like I really enjoyed it. It was an excellent exper- experience. I think you also get to a point where you think, okay, if I look forward five or 10 years, is this what I want to continue doing? Or if I were 18-year-old version of me today, with what I know now about the world, would I choose to do something different? And I think my initial decisions about career were a lot driven by family, right? Like, okay, my mother was a single parent. I had siblings. So it was more of, okay, let me start with a job which is safe, which provides a bit of security in my early years. By this point, I was like, well, that's all done. My sister's graduated. I'm good. I'm chilling. So let me get a blank piece of paper and how would I think about the world? So that was kind of the catalyst, right? Like, let's refresh and let's start off with the version of me today, not the version of me who made the first decision when I was 17, right? So when I thought about it, I had this idea, I'm going to do my own fintech startup. It's going to be catered to, you know, specifically like women of color who struggle to get finance because that was something I saw growing up. I was like, yeah, I'm going to go and start and I'm, you know, I'll do an MBA because my mum won't get crazy if I say to her, I'm quitting this job I've worked 10 years to get to a really good position in, to go back to school. Whereas if I said I'm quitting just to chill or do a startup, she might have been like, boss, I think you're losing it, right? Like, uh, I'm not sure <laughs> that's the right decision. That was kind of the catalyst. Berkeley, I came, similar to what we were chatting about earlier, I, I came, walked around the campus, touched a lot of my undergraduate experience. I was like, I could, I can see myself here, right? And it's one of these things where it was like a human, there was no sophistication about that decision. It was just like, I feel like this is where I could be for a few years. And I feel like I would be happy here versus the other places where I could have gone. And I was right. I think I was right. I don't have the counterfactual, right? But it was a really fun experience. I met, as you will know, awesome people. The fact that we're speaking is itself, you know, sentiment to what Berkeley and Haas has to offer. I came here to start this thing, but I also came here just to take a step back and say, okay, let me think about what I would want to do if I wasn't encumbered by the things I think I should do. Yeah, I see. And what was your experience like? (laughs) At Berkeley? Yeah. Yeah, it was funny. You had like the, the downs, not less so of like my personal experience, but more of what was going on on campus and in America, particularly if you're a foreign person coming to America, right? So like the whole way society exists around identity, around race, around all of these topics 
it was very present on campus, which was good because it made you having conversations about it. But if you are one of the affected groups who are, you know, being asked to provide way more than the experience of just a student, it changes somewhat the experience, right? It's not like, hey, I'm going to Berkeley. It's like my secondary school where a third of the people look like me, two thirds don't look like me, but you wouldn't even notice who is who because everyone's the same, right? And in that experience, you just live the student experience as you a student who can get lost in the crowd. Whereas it was slightly different at Berkeley, particularly for, you know, students of colour, right? Where yeah. there was a lot going on in America, a lot going on in the world. And there's a lot more of a focus on, okay, you know, hey, boss, what do you think? Or what's your view? Which is good, I like to share um, my views and my perspectives. Sometimes it's nice just to, for a topic to be so adjacent to me that no one even wonders what my opinion is. It's just, oh, I don't need to ask because we all understand it as a conceptual thing, which was a bit like, it was interesting. It was an interesting introduction to kind of US society, but it was also very Berkeley, right? Yeah. <laughs> I don't imagine there other campuses where we have such deep and in-depth conversations. I'm sure you've, you've had podcasts with people who are ex hearts who talk about the dialogues on race class that we had, which was unbelievable. Like in my top three classes at half. And that was basically a student-run class, right? So you think that kind of thing is what makes Berkeley really unique and really special. The other pieces which for me were really good were the blockchain and the crypto hype. So I joined, yeah. I went in um, just as it was starting to get excited. I basically spent my two years doing research into the industry, learning about it, doing talks, writing stuff, getting to the point where when people said the word blockchain, folks were like, oh, where's boss? someone says blockchain i just appear out of nowhere being like blockchain that again was one of those things where it's so berkeley it's i could never have drawn the line from what i was doing pre-mba to crypto and blockchain yeah because it just wasn't it wasn't in my brain it wasn't a conceivable thing right but when you get on the campus and you have these incredible undergrads super smart super talented you have people who are encouraging you to, oh, just take a risk, right? Do something different. Those are the things that when I look back to Berkeley, I'm like, yeah, man, it was, it was great. Why did you transition from uh, Ripple to, to Plaid? Yeah, I think that there were a couple of reasons. I think one was, and you hear about it a lot at heart, after a couple of years, the expansion opportunities like grow at like a crazy rate. So yeah. it was an opportunity to do something awesome in a company which I was, like, I had friends who were building fintechs and everyone was building on Plaid. Yeah. I had apps that I used which were built on Plaid. So that bit of seeing a lot more directly the impact and the outcome of my work, having the opportunity to say, okay, we are on a very quick trajectory. We want you to come here and help build and grow this team. And I think one part is just the essence of the mission of the company, right? Which is fundamentally what I came to America to do. And when you think back about the story you want to tell your kids, your family, being able to say, hey, the Boston Alibaki of half class 2029 came over this idea to build some crazy fintech for a specific demographic group. And they could do it because Plaid built all of the infrastructure pieces that enabled them. That, for me, was like, that is so compelling. 
I am still deep in the crypto and blockchain game. I was actually with one of my friends from Ripple last night, having some dinner. I think the company is doing awesome things. For me, it was a decision of, hey, you're getting us to do something which is a few degrees bigger and greater than what you're currently doing. The impact you're having is more direct. You can see it, you can feel it, and you are building the infrastructure for every fintech that you know, which gives you the ability to have a multiplier effect immediately, right? Yeah. You know, that's a perfect segue. Can you tell us a little bit more about what you're doing at Plaid? Yeah, Plaid is fintech. What we're really trying to do is provide access to finance for everybody, right? Uh, it's, mm-hmm. it's kind of kind of how we think about it as a company. And there are a few elements to that, right? One of it is allowing individual consumers like you and I to connect to the apps that allow us to build a better financial life. Yeah. Part of it is to allow the developers, so the fintech apps, to get access to the data and the insights that they need to build these amazing tools that allow people to have better control of their finance. And another part of it is allowing these big, large financial institutions to really participate in the world of open finance, right? Which is, hey, your information, your data is now a lot more mobile and allows you to do things that you couldn't do so easily 10, 20, 30 years ago. And we build infrastructure for all of that, right? We like to think about it as being kind of when you have that first amazing experience on an app, we want to be part of that, that, that story, right? And within BizOps, it means a lot of things that a lot of different companies. I, I think of BizOps as like a few distinct things. One is all these cross-functional projects are important to a company, but don't neatly fit into the bucket of one person, right? It's not solely sales. It's not solely product. It kind of spans all of them. And what you want is somebody whose stake in the game is plaid outcome versus sales, product, engineering outcome. Another part of it is how do you enable the leaders in the organization to make the best decisions as quickly and effectively as possible? And some of that is synthesizing data, analyzing data, providing a recommendation, which is substantiated, right? Some of it is, okay, we know what the strategy is, we know what we want to do, but how do you actually go from this is what we want to do to this is how we do? And then how do you go from this is how we do to this is how we measure whether we did it well, less well, or whether, more importantly, we should stop doing this because there's something more important. Right. And, and then the third kind of bucket, I would say, is everything else that doesn't fit neatly into bucket one or two, Right. Um, so if I think about my business experiences, there are things that vary from opening up offices in new countries to building new ideas, what products and services you want to launch, to thinking about go-to-market strategies for specific segments that you've already identified, right? They don't neatly fall into one or two, but there were all the things that you need to make a business that is scaling scale more quickly, more effectively, and more successfully. So yeah, BizOps for me is a job where it is, what I would look for a BizOps person to do is go find problems that are preventing the company from self-actualizing, let's say, and go fix them by whatever means necessary. Use yeah. your toolkit, use your relationships, use your creativity, use all of the things that you have at your disposal to find the best way to solve a problem and to make everybody else better equipped to be successful in their roles. 
That's perfect. Thank you for uh, giving me uh, the job description uh, for my next hire. <laughs> That's exactly what we're missing. A clever right now. Uh, <laughs> I, I'm not in the market yet. Let us go raise another forty million, and, and then maybe maybe we can entice you that because we do need to incorporate some aspects of of fintech of of actually transactions. That's our big focus and push right now. Um, yeah, is to incorporate monetization for creators. But how do you embed the finance, right? Like, how do you make it so that someone isn't? And you know, it ties a lot. We you talked about. We talked about my previous job, Ripple, and, and Slack. It's very similar, right? Like, Ripple is saying, okay, how do we do things with payments in a Web 3.0 kind of world? How do we allow someone to send one cent from the Philippines to America immediately? Right. How do you make that cost effective? Yeah. And when you think about how do you monetize your business, whatever business. That is part of it in the future state. The immediate state is, okay, well, in America, how do we make that work? How do we connect it to the tooling that exists? How do we connect it to someone's bank account? How do we enable them to take information about the podcast and their experiences and translate that into insights to inform their spending or saving or some other kind of financial or, or life habit, right? Yeah, that's really interesting. We might be looking for an advisor soon. A new advisor. <laughs> uh, but jokes aside, you had mentioned at the onset of this conversation your interest and passion around uh, fintech for underrepresented women. Is that still something you're able to, to continue to do some work on or be involved in in some ways, shape, or form since you haven't started a startup yet? Unless there's something in, the, in stealth mode that... <laughs> yeah, the startup is in stealth mode that no one knows about yet. Not directly, but as I said, for me... What we're building at Plaid does that. Like, it's very, very essence is that thing. And as I said to you, if the Plaid that I envision in, you know, two, three, whatever number of years coming to bear existed when I landed in America five years ago, then we might be having a different conversation, not about me with Plaid and Ripple, but Boston FinTech. Oh, you know, boss, how did your fintech go to the moon so quickly? How did you become a unicorn in six months? That might be the conversation. So, yeah, not directly. And that's something I've I kind of identified when I came here, which is loads of people have awesome ideas in the Bay. Loads of people can execute in the Bay. But I wanted to make sure I was executing something that would happen at scale and that would really be accessible for the people and the communities that I care about. And... I genuinely believe that we can do that at Plaid. We have the FinRise program where we take uh, Incubator, right? And it is, again, the version of me five years ago. We say, hey, come, you're going to have access to Plaid. All of the brain and horsepower that Plaid has, we're going to use that to help you build and scale your idea and make it successful. That is incredible. And that is the way I'm getting closer to the, the outcomes that I want to achieve, yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I'm curious. I mean, you know, you did have that. I'm an entrepreneur, so I have to ask this question. You did have that inkling, right, to start something. Yeah. I do wonder, and this is something I completely overlook sometimes because I've, I'm very privileged in that my parents immigrated here and set the course for me and laid the groundwork so that I can be a citizen here and don't have to worry about <laughs> things like that. And did that factor in at all to, you know, wanting to be entrepreneurial? just having to have a visa or have yeah, a work permit? It does to some degree. I also think that 
my nature is problem solving, so I would have found a solution, right? If I was as committed to that once I'd sculpt out what my day would look like, and if I believed that I could truly execute on it in the period that I thought I had available and I wanted to execute on it, the visa would have been a thing, but I would have solved it. I don't know how, but I would have solved it. Like, it's a concern, yes, but there are many, many ways to to find flexible solutions. Um, There are many different types of visas for different kinds of people who are able to do different kinds of things. So I... Maybe it's like a latent subconscious barrier of I don't, don't want to take this risk and all this thing. And then you know, like three years later, it doesn't work and I get kicked out and I'm left with like 200 grand of debt. Yeah. And I've made even more debt for my startup and I'm kicked out of the country. Like, yeah, maybe, maybe that was in my head. Like, <laughs> yeah. could have been there. Um, <laughs> but in all honesty, I believe you can blame my mum for this. She used to say, you know, like, education is your passport. You can do whatever you want as long as you put your mind to it. So yeah. I truly believe that if I had wanted to, I would have found a solution. I accepted that what I wanted to do, I didn't believe that it was going to have the outcome that I thought it was. Maybe because I didn't put enough cycles towards thinking of through it. Maybe because I realized that it's less important for me to be at the front of the thing with my face. And mm-hmm. it's more important at this current juncture in my life to think about the outcome. Maybe in like five years' time, I'll be yeah. like, man, Sean, dude, I just want to be on Forbes. I just want my face on Forbes. I want to be <laughs> in that. So, like, maybe it could happen. So I would say it was in my mind. It was less in my mind than it probably ought to have been. And if I believe that was on the start, I don't think I'd have let the reason be an issue. I love that. And I had to ask that question for our listeners, just in case, you know, we, we have a lot of international students, right? And, and this is actually a topic that I feel like doesn't get talked about a lot, Yeah. obviously, because, you know, people do want to do startup, but it's, it isn't as feasible sometimes. And so it, I think just having this conversation openly about it, it's good to start this conversation too. Now, I do have to ask, you know, do you, I like, i Ever since I moved to the U.S., sometimes I'm just like, I really dream of living elsewhere in another country. (laughs) What made you want to come to the U.S.? (laughs) (laughs) Um, I think if you want to do an MBA, that's just like conceptually a thing, there are very few places where it's valued as highly. Once you've done your MBA, that three to five years post, and we're like, oh, you got an M- oh, you got an MBA from Berkeley. Okay, yeah, well, hi. Oh, we haven't had an interview yet. Yeah, but you've got an MBA from Berkeley, so you must be smart, right? Like that kind of uh, sentiment. Yeah. And I think having lived and worked London, Mexico, Switzerland, I was like, yeah, you know, the US is due a bit of me, right? Like, <laughs> <laughs> and I think there's just a lot of creativity. This specific part of the world, there is a desire to take risks more relative to other places in the world. And there is an excess of capital to apply to those risks, right? So part of it was like, hey, you know, let me just see. Let me see what I can take from it, what I can give to it, right? Where I can contribute to society. And when I'm 80 years old, I can't imagine I'll be saying, oh, man, damn, I wish I didn't move to the US. I wish I yeah. stayed in London or, or wherever it was. And that's kind of part of it, right? Living experiences was 
as important as the NBA, right? Living the experience of another place, another culture, another starting from the beginning. You arrive, you're like, okay, well, how do I open a bank account? Yeah. I, don't know. I don't know. Like you go to the bank and say you don't have the paperwork. You're like, what paperwork? Oh, we need this document, this document. Yeah. Uh, like that kind of experience is, I, I really enjoy doing that again and again and again. That's amazing. And I think that's, I don't know, that's an Aquarius thing. I have a s- very similar personality in that I like to back myself into corners or not. That's the way I describe it. But it's just, I like to be uncomfortable because I yeah. feel like it's how I, when I feel stagnant, is how I grow. Like I, you know, I came from, I grew up in, I was born in China, but I grew up in Michigan in the Midwest. And a lot of my friends after school, you know, went to Chicago, New York, obviously, cause that's the nearby big cities. And I was like, hey, I, I know one person in Los Angeles. Let me just move there. <laughs> and I literally came out here with, I just drove out here um, with nothing, with like a sleeping bag. And I thought, this is freaking amazing. Right? <laughs> and people are like, you're crazy. Like, why would you do that? You know, why don't you go to places where you have, you know, you know more people. But I said, just by the nature of not knowing enough people, I I am forced to have to put myself out there. And that was my similar son. I, I, you know, I'm in Southern California now, but I felt the same way about going to Berkeley. A lot of my friends went to Anderson for business school, which is right in our backyard down here. And I said, you know, I, I just really want to go somewhere where I have to meet new people and then open yeah. my mind up to new things. So, I, yeah. not to your extreme, I'm hoping to get to your extreme of having to open up new bank accounts in new countries all the time, but... But I'll get there. I'll, but, I'll work like, there, boss. <laughs> like on that again, I moved to Mexico without really being able to speak Spanish. But like one of those ones. Like, I was oh, going to yeah, ask you, you know, if you guys like, speak yeah. Spanish. <laughs> yeah, now I do. Right now, I, mean, I basically my home language is only Spanish. Like I speak English because I I have a home office because of COVID. Yeah. But otherwise, I wouldn't be speaking English at home. But you think like that in itself is the kind of experience you're describing. Like you go there and. Okay, yes, you're going with a company, so there's some semblance of security, but the company's nine to five. How do you find friends, which is yeah. most of your time, right? How do you find experience? How do you just communicate? How yeah. do you say, I'm annoyed? Like, how do you go to the supermarket and they've given you something which is rubbish and you're like, hey, you know, this is not what I wanted. I wanted the one in uh, lime green, not deep yeah. green. Like, how, how do you articulate those nuances? So for me, uh, moving to Mexico, spending those those three years, like, oh, all of the I don't know how to, but I will find the solution experiences rolled up into a few years of life. Yeah, I love it. Well, you know what? When you um, when you're ready to go on Forbes, you need some money. <laughs> Hopefully, in three to five years, you know, serving that sold out of the company, and it's like <laughs> we'll, we'll back whatever it is that you're doing. Then. Um, <laughs> but um, we like to end the interview. This was a fun interview to to begin with. But we love to end the interview with even more fun things. Love to hear what are some interesting things that you're you're doing lately. Like r- anything interesting that you're reading or watching. Reading or watching? No, reading. I don't have anything specific that I'm reading. When I started working after MBA, I was reading before COVID. I was reading a book every few weeks. Yeah, because I was taking like the Trans Bay, and it was like my meditation time. I'd read the book. Watching. What would you say is like, you know, all the books you've read so far, anything that's very top of mind, influential? <laughs> There's a practical one, which is like a book called uh, Measure What Matters, right? Which is like the OKR book, which is relevant for, for work. And I thought it, it's actually interesting. Right? It's like a 
it's a good framework, not just for work, but just for how you think about measuring the outcomes that really matter in life, right? If this is your yeah. objective, John what are the results? And what are the things that allow you to know you're getting closer? I think in terms of books, I read a lot of books by a Nigerian author. One was called Americana. Um, yeah. was was one that I read. I was like, yeah, that is, like my experience is different because I'm from England, right? And yeah. when I speak, I was like, yeah, he's, he's English, that kind of thing. <laughs> reading that book, I'm like, okay, you can definitely see the cultural way that black people from Africa and black people from America interact and don't interact and like that book's really really good well i completely forgot to ask like ancestrally where um is your family from oh yeah so my both my parents are from nigeria my grandparents are also from nigeria but like in nigeria there are three different tribes and they're like the three most well-known tribes let's say are yoruba Igbo, and hausano and my grands are both from one tribe and my granddads are both from a different tribe but yeah so, which in itself would in historically be considered different countries, right? Um, That's one of the things I, you know, learned very, pretty recently, and I would say in the past two or three years, how the conflict in Africa is because of, is, is just spurred by colonialism in the sense that like the country lines were drawn randomly. Yeah. It was just randomly drawn. And then you're literally dividing tribes or clans or just clumping tribes together that that ha were different countries like considered different countries literally it's like imagine being the enemy of someone for a thousand years and then like uh, like my mates the british roll up oh yeah you are now the same people uh, i hate this guy like i've hated this guy's family for a thousand years like how can i be his <laughs> mate now you know <laughs> yeah i feel like we should um I'm always interested in asking this, you know, ancestral question because even in China and India, uh, less Africa as a, as a continent, people, you know, tend to think, well, just because someone a thousand years ago or 100, 200 years ago drew like this line and called everybody Chinese, like there's 56 minority groups, like have different languages, different cuisine, they're just completely different people. And it's one of these things I love exploring because... It's recognizing individuality in that sense. And, and that history is way deeper and more meaningful in all of the customs, right? Than some arbitrary line, not arbitrary, but, you know, like some modern new age line that yeah. dictates that, you know. It, it was pretty arbitrary. It's <laughs> <laughs> very real. They, they drew some lines because there was a lake there, right there or something. I was like, all right, let's draw around this lake. That's it. Uh, <laughs> Boss, I uh, would love to talk to you more. It was a real pleasure having you on today. Thank you very much, Sean, for, for having me. Thanks for inviting me. It's been, been fun. Thanks again for tuning in to this episode of the One Haas Podcast. If you enjoyed our show today, please remember to hit that subscribe or follow button on your favorite podcast player. We'd also really appreciate you giving us a five-star rating and review. If you're looking for more content, please check out our website at haas.fm. That's spelled h-a-a-s dot f-m there you can subscribe to our monthly newsletter and check out some of our other berkeley house podcasts and until next time go bears <laughs>